Yeah. So would it would it be accurate to say at this point that youth suicide is a public health crisis, do you think? 100%. Absolutely. Yeah, I would say so. Hi, this is Cassie Gillespie, and you're listening to The Social Work Lens. The Social Work Lens is made possible by a collaboration between the University of Vermont's Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont's Family Services Division. Today, we're here with part two of our three-part series about youth and suicide. We're calling this one, Someone Screened Positive. Now what? I do want to pause, though, before we jump in and say, if you didn't listen to part one, it would really be worthwhile to go back and give it a listen. It'll give you important context about suicide and suicidality, screening in general, and specifically what tools we're talking about. We do have our returning guests today, Ellen Aerosmith and Chris Allen. But one more note before we jump in. We're aware that this is a really difficult topic, and many of us have our own personal connections. So be sure to take care of yourself as you listen. Stepping away and coming back is okay. It's also okay to not come back if you need. And if you're looking for more resources or have concerns at the end, please be sure to check out the show notes linked to this episode. Okay, here we go. Welcome back, Ellen. Welcome back, Chris. Thanks, Cassie. Thank you. Thanks for coming again. So today we're going to get into what happens when someone screens positive on the tool. But before we do that, I think it might be helpful to just share some statistics about youth and suicide in general. Um, is, is one of you willing to tell us, give us a little context about kind of how is this problem looking? Are numbers going up, going down? What's the state of the state? Yeah, thank you for that. And we'll we'll talk about some data. Uh, and I just want to be cognizant about the data. So there are lives lost behind this data. And we don't want to lose that when we talk about data. So um just recognize that uh, numbers can be really high and those are individual lives that are lost or experiencing something that is really, really challenging uh, and hard, difficult. Maybe they don't have the support. And so uh, I just wanted to set the scene there uh, so people uh, recognize that there's people behind this. So suicide is the second most common uh, cause of death for youth uh, 10 years old and older um, after accidents. Um, So more youth die by suicide than the top 17 leading medical causes of death combined. So these are big, big numbers. It's very, very prevalent amongst youth. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, there's the numbers and then all of our lived experience. I think it's probably no surprise to any of us, especially who work in mental health and mental health adjacent fields, to know that folks are struggling and really have been. And and a lot of us noticed um, in our day-to-day work the real increase in folks who are struggling with mental health issues, uh, like higher levels, both of numbers of people struggling and you know, in my own work, I would say higher acuity to just the stuff we're seeing, um, you know, k- kids and youth and adults are, are having a hard time right now at higher numbers, I think, than we had seen 
previously. And I and I think um, one statistic that will be useful to some of your listenership who are connected specifically to DCF would be that according to the Suicide Prevention Resource Center, children and youth in foster care are about two and a half times more likely to have seriously considered suicide and almost four times more likely to have attempted suicide than other youth. Wow. Um, and that data is a little bit dated at this point, but I think that we can um, pretty confidently say that because of a lot of risk factors that we're going to get to momentarily, yeah. this is a higher risk population that we need to be thinking about um, and taking care when thinking about who's at risk and who might need some additional screening or help. Yeah, and one other uh, data point to consider is that uh, from the uh, years 2007 to 2017, there was a 20 or 56 percent increase in the rate of adolescent suicide. And yes, this data point is a little outdated. And uh, just wanting to also provide a little bit more context about it is that this was pre-pandemic, and we've only seen numbers increase more and more. Um, kids struggling with their mental health and having a harder time in in school and other settings. And it's really, really stark to see that level of increase. And we've also seen the uh, national uh, annual uh, suicide death rate increase as well. Um, So that's really just underpinning the conversation of what type of increase we're looking at. And to note, too, that um, certain populations are are at more risk, Uh, you know, that we need to be, again, paying particular focus to, um, you know, suicide rates are rising, um, you know, at at faster or higher rates, pardon, sorry, um, for racial, sexual, and gender minority youth. So I think that um, folks in certain populations are just are at higher risk and need additional um, care and and, um, screening. Potentially, yeah. So, would it would it be accurate to say at this point that youth suicide is a public health crisis? Do you think? One hundred percent. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I would say so. Okay. And it is important to remind ourselves that suicide is preventable as well. Um, well so we do have strategies and interventions. Uh, that's the to best kind it. of public health crisis. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Something we can do something about. Yeah. So let's talk about risk factors. Uh, what are they? You know, I I think that as we've grappled with numerous times, there's sort of like population level things and then the individual person in in front of you. So we always give that caveat that these are sort of general um, trends or things to notice. So risk factors that we've observed are things like loneliness or hopelessness, shame, feeling like other people would be better off without you or like a burden are really important to notice when people are talking um, if they're making mention of that a history of abuse. Previous history of suicide attempts is is really important to pay attention to. That really um, increases your level of risk if it's been something that has happened previously. Loss or breakdown in relationships, family history of suicide, access to means. Are there any others, Chris, that I um, neglected on the list here too? No, I, I do think that this is a pretty exhaustive list. Uh, I do also want to make mention that risk factors are very personal to people and they can shift and change throughout someone's life. And so they are dynamic and they they won't always be the same. Um, but there are some that that will stay the same, like family history of suicide. Mm-hmm. 
And I think one thing to keep in mind, too, is that uh, for kids in foster care, the kid might not know the family history of suicide. So just keep that in mind. And, you know, there's some other risk factors, too, that a kid might not have that information. And it may be pertinent to the conversation or it might not be pertinent to the conversation. And I think you can have these risk factors. Probably all of us could look at that list and and pick off several that we have in our own lives or our own family history. And that doesn't mean in and of itself that you are someone um, who's going to die by suicide or have suicidal ideation. These are just things to pay attention to that maybe put you at higher risk. And I think it's important too developmentally to note that yeah. kids and teens tend to be impulsive, right? Like their prefrontal cortex is not all yeah. the way developed. And that often suicidal thoughts are kind of, I like the metaphor of like a wave, right? They come and they crest and then they subside. It's generally not this chronic, constant level. And so the best thing that we can do for kids is to keep them safe during that really pivotal peak of the wave. Um, And the best way we can do that, which we'll get into, is through means restriction and close supervision. So making sure that our environment is as safe as it can be and that we're keeping eyes on these kids to keep them as safe as we can to get over that wave. Because generally we come down off the wave. Even, you know, in our own lives, maybe we have a really bad day and then we just go to bed and we go to sleep. And eight hours later we wake up and it's not all gone, but maybe we feel slightly differently about it um, in the morning when we wake up than we did before. And sometimes even getting through that like long, hard night night is enough to be in a slightly different and maybe slightly better place in the morning. And then you still need probably supports or resources or help. But we're really thinking about how to get through that crest moment with kids and keep them safe during that key time. Yeah. And you mentioned that one of the factors specific to kiddos in the child welfare system who are in custody is that they may not know their family history I'm wondering if the actual act of of kind of like family disruption of needing to be living somewhere else um, is a factor in of itself for those kids, too. Yeah. So disruptions, any type of transition from one setting to the next or from one uh, foster home to the next or a change in the family composition that's um, or caregiver composition that's around them and supporting them. These can come with a lot of different feelings. Um, for that kid. And and those feelings can range from hurt to shame to confusion and hopelessness. They don't know what's going on. They may never know what exactly happened. And they may blame themselves um, because that might be learned behavior from previous um, situations that, that they've been in. And when kids are going through these transitions, it's a really important time to think about screening uh, kids using an evidence-based tool that we talked about in, in episode one. Yeah. I imagine there are some particular warning signs that might um, go beyond risk factors that let you know this is a kid you really need to be paying attention to. Is it? Should we talk about some of those? Yeah, absolutely. I think, again, it's really important to note that these are really specific to the individual person. And the best way that you can know is by relying on your relationship with a person. Like you will know kind of their baseline and how they present and how they go through the world. And if suddenly it's very different, noticeably different than how they typically present, that is kind of your warning sign. And that can look different for different people. So your best tool is relationship and contact and checking in. Because some people, 
you know, kind of counterintuitively, maybe once they've made a decision around suicide will actually present as kind of euphoric, like it feels like a relief and they're really happy and relieved. And that can be a confusing signal. So I will list off some general warning signs, but want to give, again, the caveat that your best tool is knowing and being in relationship with a human and noticing when things feel off. And that's your cue to ask. But generally speaking, kids especially will tell you. They will say they will make explicit comments, right? Uh, They're not beating around the bush generally. I mean, some of them are. Again, it's specific. But, you know, those overt comments, feelings of hopelessness, withdrawing or isolating. Maybe they quit a team or they drop out of something or they sort of disengage from things that they were really interested in before. Giving away their belongings, you know, moodiness or irritability, or like researching. I mean, I think that's why it's important that we really pay attention to our kids' online lives as well. You know, if if we notice what they're Googling or what they're searching or what they're talking to other kids about, that might be another indication that something's going on. And then, you know, if you're worried, ask, right? Like, that's what you need to do. Like, don't um, sit in wondering or guessing. Uh, the best thing you can do is is just to ask them and then to use some of these tools if they say yes, that they're having some of those thoughts. Yeah, I think one of the really troubling things is when you're making these observations and in, in someone uh, withdrawing or isolating that you draw the the conclusion or the assumption they can't be thinking about suicide, right? Like they're seven years old. They would never think about killing themselves. Or, And I would advise not jumping to that assumption until you ask. Like you need to ask in order to better understand and assess the situation about where that where that kid is. And one thing that, that I noticed a lot is um, changes in behavior are really good signals of wanting to die or want or thinking about dying yeah. or not being future oriented to in five years I would like to be you know entering high school or things like that so one example that I'll share is that uh, while I was working at the psychiatric hospital there was an individual that that I was working with uh, that, Every Friday, we wanted to walk the hallway, and it was a way for us to just check in with each other. It was the end of the week, and it really helped that individual regulate themselves, and there was no talk about discharge planning or who do you want to talk to next week or what meetings could we set up or what would help you. It was really just a, a time for them to share share what was going on for them, what was going on in the hospital, uh, who were they talking to, was was anything different about this week uh, that they wanted to share. And when that individual no longer wanted to walk with me, yeah. that was... that like a red flag. Yeah, it was a red flag. And it made me notice a little bit more, like, something's going on. I don't know what, but then I communicate that to the individual to the adult in this situation. And also I share that amongst the treatment team. So I'm sharing that, my observation, so that they're aware as well. And in the last episode, we did some myth busting again about the idea of like planting the idea and yeah. worry. And I, I'll i just share a, a story of um, a kid it, when I worked at the school 
you know, kids are weird <laughs> and it can be hard <laughs> to interpret their behavior. Like sometimes, you know, like we, we just wonder. And so I did. I, I asked this this kiddo about suicide and their response was like, what a weird question to ask me. Let's play Legos. And and I think that was a good reminder to me of like, it wasn't troubling to them. It right. wasn't, it didn't phase them. It didn't hurt our relationship. They They were just like, you know, they just answered the question and then we moved along. But I would not have known that unless I asked. Yeah. And it helped me the next time I did need to ask. And it was a yes to feel like most kids can can handle this kind of conversation um, and, and can have that, you know, like that, that it was more about me than about them in terms yeah. of fear and hesitancy around asking. So I liked that, like, what a weird question to ask me, you know, yeah. so, and just moving, moving right on. along. Yeah. <laughs> and most kids are kind of like that, you know. Okay, so let's imagine that you know a kiddo in some capacity, either in work or in your personal life, and there's some warning signs, and so you've asked the question, right? Something has has prompted you to ask this kiddo um, if you can ask them some more questions. And so you've done a screening tool. You've done the Columbia, or you've done the ASQ, and they've endorsed some level of response that lets you know there should be a next step. I'm just going to pause here and say, so... If at the beginning, when we said you should listen to the first episode, if you really didn't, but now you're like, what are you talking about? It's all there, right? So you can go right back and check out what those tools are and what the questions are. Um, But so if you're working with a kiddo and you've done a screen and they're saying, yes, I have a plan, what do you want us to know about where to go from there? First, uh, as we said in episode one, it's good to just take a deep breath, to take a pause, like to notice what your own body, uh, you know, like I always have to say to myself, like, watch your face, right? Like, because I have a very expressive face. Um, But to just make sure, again, that what we want to be conveying is connection, groundedness, um, you know, trust that it's okay for us to be having this conversation. So just to manage yourself momentarily before you even respond at all. And then I think um, this is going to, for your folks who have anxiety, (laughs) be a little scary, but not to over or underreact, right? Um, Which means like, don't be dismissive, but also don't have a big reaction um, because we want to convey we can handle this. I'm so thankful you told me. We can make a plan that you're you're portraying sort of confidence and groundedness that you together can can make a plan and to keep kids safe. So um, for me, a go-to response would be something like, thank you for trusting me and telling me how you're feeling. Let's make a plan to help you feel better, right? Because we don't want to be conveying like, oh my God, what are we going to do? Or like, no, you're fine. Because I think kids often get the under or over response from many caregivers in their life. And it is kind of an an art form to respond um, kind of at the the right modulation, right? The right way that conveys care and that we together can can manage and handle this. And um, again, that's not clinical expertise that you have, but you have to practice and get comfortable. And a lot of that is the stuff that we talked about in the first episode, which is managing kind of your own baggage around suicide to be okay, to feel okay yourself talking about it and managing it. So finding that not over or under reaction stance is, is, I think, something that requires some practice. And I think, too, especially for kids who maybe um, have a trauma history or a complex family situation, it's important that they don't 
um, feel responsible for managing the feelings of the adult in front of them. I think a lot of them kind of instinctively do that. So, you know, we get this in our social work training, like, don't make it about you. (laughs) I think some of us would want to be like, don't hurt yourself. That would make me sad or like something like that. I think that can come from like a caring place, but it's not the right message because then that gives them kind of the burden of not only managing their own feelings, but your feelings as well. So again, that's that finding that not over or under responding and thinking about, I'm not going to give any of the, the, any of my own feelings or discomfort to this child to manage as well. Um, so that's another really important reason to keep yourself regulated. Um, and as you know, we talked about the screening tools in episode um, one. And, and so we're talking about there's a yes. And if if it was that number five question for the ASQ or on the Columbia, um, whichever tool you're using, there will be a clear question that indicates the highest level of acuity. And that's kind of clear. Like the buck stops there. Like that kid needs that higher level of evaluation right away. And um, depending on your role, that may or may not be you. For a lot of folks who are listening, it might not be. Um, but then you know know, like, I really can't leave this kiddo alone or send them home. They need to have that higher level of evaluation before we can go home. But um, what we're saying for the other questions is really that we're digging in and getting a little more information. And maybe we find out something that makes us think, oh, like this level of risk is actually quite low. I think that I can call mom or whatever and kind of talk through what happened in the day. And and this kid is probably okay going home and I'm going to check in on them tomorrow, right? Like there can be Um, a whole range of responses, again, that's really tailored to that specific child and their circumstance and what they're communicating to you. So these tools are like an entry point to that conversation. And that when we do identify those kids who have the really highest level of acuity, um, that then there's a next step to that process, which is a more formal assessment or evaluation that's done that then, again, has some clear pathways of what to do next, whether they need to be hospitalized or um, things like that. But again, those will be a, a relatively small portion of the kids who screen positive need that highest level of care that most of the kids who we encounter in our work um, need a, to know that a grown-up really cares about yeah. them and wants to help keep them safe and to make a safety plan about how we're going to keep them, try to keep them safe and that we're communicating and teaming with the other caregivers in their life so that there is some consistency around that. So I just want to kind of grab it here and summarize and make sure I'm understanding, you know, clearly as I'm listening to you both. So for the two most common evidence-based tools, the ASQ and the Columbia, which again, we'll link to in the show notes. If you get a positive screen on number five for the Columbia or on numbers four to six. No, I did it backwards. (laughs) Yeah, five on the ASQ. Yeah, Five on the ASQ and four to six on the Columbia. That's where you know um, you shouldn't be leaving this kiddo alone. There's a next step. And it's probably someone with more or it may be someone with more training than you, depending on. Uh, what hat you're wearing as you move through the world. And the nice thing is those tools are like, uh, make it very clear. Like, so on the Columbia, like it's, it's bright right red. <laughs> it, yeah. it goes, it's like color coded and it yeah. is red on those questions. Or on the ASQ, it's in a standalone box um, kind of for number five to indicate to you, like, this is the question you really need to pay attention to, where if this is yes, then that kind of triggers that 
protocol that you hopefully have already in place that you feel comfortable with and you know ahead of time because you've had training or talked to your supervisor. You should not go into that blind of no, you should know what happens if there's a yes on those questions before you start talking. Otherwise, you probably will end up in a sticky situation. And so what do you recommend for someone who might be listening who maybe, I don't know, works in an after-school program or um, just has a lot of teens in their house and, you know, is is sort of doing their due diligence to be part of this conversation? And they heard this episode and they went and they got the show notes and they clicked on a tool and they've got it. Um, you know, how do you want people to approach this um, if they're not in a sort of formalized social work setting? I'll let Chris, but I was just going to say that we're spoiled in Vermont and that we have really good resources available to us through our crisis. So if you are not in a mental health setting, you know, I think we have numbers that you can call in every county in Vermont. We have national lines. We have resources. Uh, and I'll let Chris speak to those. But I think that that that's your next step. If you're a caregiver or an after school provider, you lean on those crisis resources that we have available to us here in Vermont. Yeah. Thank you, Ellen, for for highlighting those. And so Each county has a community mental health agency that has a 24-7, 365 crisis line that can be accessed and that caregiver or parent can talk through the situation and give as much information as they're able to and willing to um, to the other, to the call responder. And that person can walk you through what you can do, what level of risk it is, give you some additional resources or ask you to follow up with someone in the morning um, or the next day. And uh, additionally, there is a 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, Mm -hmm. which is a a national um, suicide and crisis lifeline. And, And here in Vermont, we answer those calls as well. And that's available 24-7, 365, too. Oh, that's too. great. And it's confidential. It's free, as is the crisis line through the Community Mental Health Agency. And both of those uh, supports are available online, ready to go. And uh, if you reach out to 988 and there's an additional layer of support that's needed in that situation, it might reach a level of needing a follow-up call the next day um, based on the level of risk. Um, and that can be scheduled right then and there on on the phone line. Or uh, maybe there's a, uh, a mobile crisis need as well, which uh, just uh, went live statewide. Oh, uh, and so if that's needed, then there's going to be a two-person team that responds to wherever you are in order to better assess what's going on, get eyes on, and figure out what what makes sense for this this situation and and really continue to provide support additional resources as needed and it's really in the hopes of having a person-centered approach that is led by the individual in crisis or going through a, a challenging time and that is we want to be responsive to that need, yeah. uh, not perceived need. That's super important. And they're a helpful resource. I used use them when I was um, working in schools just as like um, 
a resource myself. So say I administer this tool and I just don't really know what to make of it or how to interpret it. And then I've called those resources before to say, hey, here's what's happening and here's what I'm thinking. Does that make sense? Yeah. Again, you know, we talked in episode one about liability and just not feeling alone in this work. Yeah. So even if you're not ready to have them come evaluate someone necessarily, they can be a helpful resource just to check your own judgment and assumptions yeah. and interpretation Back of a tool. Up. Exactly. Yeah. And document, document, document. Yeah. 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 Right? Yep. This is liability is best shared, like we talked Don't about. Don't worry alone. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and what's really important is that you're consulting those resources and using those resources and then making sure that you are writing down in the documentation, whether that's a case note or therapy note, that you have consulted them and what they recommended. And then whatever next steps that you took. And we know, too, that in various roles you might have with kids and youth, confidentiality definitely is something to consider and want to kind of just highlight that when there are concerns around suicidality or, you know, my spiel to kids would always be like, if I'm worried about you or the safety of you or somebody else, then I need to bring other people into the conversation. And that's definitely true with concerns around suicidality, too, that that supersedes risks of, or um, considerations around confidentiality. And with kids, in terms of safety planning, which we'll talk about next, you really need caregivers, whoever that might be in a kid's life, on board because of um, pieces around like supervision and means restrictions. Really, kids can't do that by themselves. Yeah. They need folks around them who can help to implement this plan. So you really need to communicate often and well with caregivers when you're concerned about um, a kiddo as part of that safety planning process and just to have them feel on board and part of the process and so that they're weighing in. They, they often have a lot of, I mean, obviously knowledge and um, backstory and context for their own kid as well. That's really important and useful information. So if I go back to this example where maybe I work in an after school program, I don't know why I landed there, but I did. And I've done a screening. Um, I've done the ASQ. And if the child has endorsed yes for five, I'm, I'm clear on what I'm doing next, right? I'm tapping into these resources. I'm calling. I'm not letting this kiddo um, be alone. I'm contacting caregivers. What if we've had a yes to some of the other questions, um, but not the not sort of like the big red question? Yeah. Again, I think the best tool we have is our relationship and having a more nuanced conversation to get to listening to those whys of like, what happened? Tell me more about that day or when you were feeling that way. So we understand what it is that we need to address. But I, I think the best things we can do are still communicate with the caregiver, even yeah. if it's not the big red five or the, you know, whatever the number is in the Columbia, we still should be looping in caregivers. If really, if we've done this screening, that's a good indication you should be connecting with folks because they will want to know probably sure. that we're worried. But then we want to think about making a safety plan. And maybe, Chris, you want to talk us through the nuts and bolts of typical safety planning? Yeah, absolutely. And so one uh, one commonly used uh, safety plan out there is the Stanley Brown. And really, when we're thinking about safety planning, we're thinking about what are the ways that this person can stay alive? What is that's completely individual, it's unique to them. And ideally, the safety plan, if it ever is developed for an individual, would follow them through various settings. So from the school, 
to the pediatric practice, to the after-school program, so that everyone knows that they have a role in how to best support this person or this kid, and that they that they know how to do that. And so there's a few uh, things that are on the Stanley Brown, such as uh, protective factors and coping strategies. So asking the kid, how do you work through something that's really hard? Is it a song that you listen to? Do you want to draw? Do you want to go run around outside? What are the ways that you work through this? And then it also has a section on warning signs. So what are the warning signs that are specific to that individual? Is it when they're sitting in the back row in the classroom, when they're usually in the front row? Is it when they, after a soccer game, they don't run up to their caregiver and give them a big hug? Like, what is it that is concerning behavior? Missing the Friday walks. Yeah, exactly. And also... What's really important, too, is identify the natural support. And that may be the caregiver or it may not be the caregiver. It could be the after-school coordinator or someone that lets them out for recess. And Pets, too. (laughs) For kids, you'd be amazed how many pets are on that list of natural resources. (laughs) Um, And so what are the ways that kids feel supported? Mm -hmm. They're all around them. But identifying them and writing them down that's easy to find is really, really critical. Yeah. And then I think the other piece, too, that we've mentioned is um, just thinking big picture, uh, again, about if you listen to episode one, how are we getting through that wave of of suicidal ideation, this this crisis moment? And to do that, we need to think about what are all the ways we can keep this environment as safe as possible? And again, it's not 100% like we live in an inherently dangerous world, like we live next to roads or other things that we can't really mitigate. But what are the other things in our house, in our home, um, that we can do to keep this environment as safe as possible? So we're thinking about keeping all of our medications, both prescription and over-the-counter medications, locked or stored in a safe way. We're thinking about sharps or other dangerous things like sometimes chemicals or other things in the home. And we do have to have hard conversations about firearms in yeah. Vermont. And and that can be really tricky. We live in a state where there's really strong community and culture around hunting. And, and I think we can still have really good, respectful, open conversations about um, how firearms are stored in homes so that they are, you know, we recommend that firearms be stored and locked separately than, you know, the uh, ammunition and that it's only grownups who have keys or combinations. And I think kids are smarter than we think they are. <laughs> they, yeah. We might think they don't know where that key is, but they do. So I think, you know, really digging into that to make sure that we're making our home environment really as safe as we can and then keeping eyes on kids. Absolutely. And one thing that I that's really important with safety planning, too, is that this safety plan is not a static document. It yeah. can change, right? Because someone's coping strategies from one year might be different the next year. And they're one year older. They've been exposed to other experiences or met different people. And maybe that favorite song is no longer their favorite song anymore. And maybe it's a, it's a clip from a movie. So really tuning into that and checking in with the uh, with the kid because this is their safety plan. It's not my safety plan. Yeah. 
as the provider or as the person concerned about them. It's the safety plan for that kid. Yeah. And, I just heard a thing that said that if it takes you only five minutes, you've done it wrong, right? Yeah, that this yeah. is a thing that should take you a long time. And that's yeah. hard. And to budget for that, like you were saying, Chris, it is such a personal dynamic document that if you're doing it well, it should be a really thoughtful and kind of long process, actually, maybe 45 yeah. minutes, you know, like a long in-depth conversation to make a careful plan. Yeah. And when when revisiting that plan, too, you don't have to bring out the plan, like the document in front of the kid. You yeah. can just check back in with them about who are your supports? Yeah, yeah. yeah. How, how have things changed for you? Or what are you noticing in conversation that's coming up naturally with that, with that kid? Because you can learn a lot from that without having to have this larger, more official conversation that can yeah. feel intimidating for that kid. Should Did we move on to the limited resources yeah. in Vermont and how to maybe work with that and sure yeah i think you know all of us who have worked adjacent to mental health in vermont know it's no great mystery that we don't have as many resources as we would want and as we really need uh for kids and youth and that's a real area of of need we have to grapple with that and that can feel really hard when we're using these screening tools or asking kids about hard stuff and we don't really know if the resource that we would want for them really exists or is going to be available on the other side so say you know we get through this tool and we think oh they really need a therapist um you know like they don't need to go to the hospital but they need someone who's trained in dbt or a iop program or those yeah. kinds of things but but we don't know if we can find that We're person worried, yeah. or there is a really big wait list. Or, um, so it's something I think that we grapple with and, and worry about um, when we ask these questions. But I think that we need to ask anyway, even though we're scared about resources, uh, and to just to do our best and to to continue to get training and to continue to advocate, um, you know, for these kids for what they need so that the services that they need on the other side will be readily available to them and to families so that we don't have to have that be an additional consideration when we're just trying to think about how to keep them safe and what they need to um, you know, to want to live and to live happy, yeah. connected lives on the other side. We don't want to think about, well, how long is it going to take for the crisis person to get here? Or how long is that wait list for that program? Or are they going to have to go out of state for an inpatient program? Like those are considerations we grapple with. But I think we need to learn how to sit in the discomfort of that and still move forward with these um, the best frameworks that we have available to us while simultaneously like advocating for things to get better yeah. for kids and families in our state. I've got nothing else to add. That was a perfect wrap-up. That is a powerful point. Okay. Well, thank you both so much for being here again. And listeners, please come back and join us next time because we want to make sure we also have the conversation about moving beyond prevention into creating lives of hope and connection, lives worth living. So thank you, Ellen. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Cassie. The Social Work Lens is produced by the University of Vermont's Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont. Our theme music is composed and performed by local band Brick Drop, and our sound production and engineering has been brought to you by Egan Media Productions. We'd also like to give a special thank you to our in-house administrative production assistant, Emma Baird. For The Social Work Lens, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>